If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Cheslu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the, of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. And reproach, the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If you turn over to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. When Sinbalad the Horonite and Tobiah, the servant of the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but ye have no portion nor right in Jerusalem. Just a word of prayer, please. O Lord, we give thee thanks for the public reading of thy word. And as we come to this passage, it does contain much, but we ask and pray that thy Holy Spirit will take the words that are spoken and apply it to each one of our hearts, that we will be stirred up in our most holy faith. And indeed, Lord, we will see in our day the walls being built again. So we commit ourselves unto thee. We ask for utterance, Lord. Give ears to hear and let us hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 15 and 4, one verse, I'll just read it out to you. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. All of God's word is for our instruction. Yes, it might have been written two, three thousand years ago longer, but everything in it is for instruction. So when we come to God's word, it's important for each one of us to seek and see and hear what God wants to teach us from his word. As we come to this passage of Nehemiah, just to set the scene, Nehemiah, in 1021 BC to 920 BC, there was the three kings. We had King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And after King Solomon, the kingdom was passed to Rehoboam. If you remember, King Solomon was the one who God chose to build his temple in Jerusalem. Rehoboam took over control. The 12 tribes were under him. What does Rehoboam do? He seeks advice for the young, from his young friends and he neglects the advice of the older person. What a lesson is for us to make sure we are be careful who we listen to. But Rehoboam listened to the younger council. And as my old Sunday school teacher said, one of the greatest pivotal moments in Scripture, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. And as a result of that, the 12 tribes were split, the 10 tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south, and the 10 tribes to the north were led by a man called Jeroboam. 19 kings followed, and all those kings did evil in the sight of the Lord, bar one, which was Jehu, which did some things good in the sight of the Lord. But generally they did evil, 
And as a result of that, in 721 BC, God rose up the mighty, cruel, and ferocious Assyrians, and they came down and they took the ten tribes, decimated it, took the captives away, left the poor of the land, and hence we've probably heard that phrase, the lost tribes of Israel. The other two tribes were Benjamin and Judah. They collectively were known as Judah. They had 20 kings. Those kings also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Six of those kings were good. We know about Hezekiah and Josiah. And because some of those kings were good, the kingdom lasted a bit longer. But alas, they sinned against God. And in 608 BC, God rose up the Babylonians under the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, the golden head of the image. And he came and he besieged and took Jerusalem. And in three waves from 608 to 586 BC, Babylon came against Jerusalem took the captives captive, destroyed the walls, destroyed the city. And Psalm 137 tells us, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Verse 4 of that chapter tells us, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And is that not the same today? This land of Ulster is very similar to that state they were in because it's getting harder and harder to sing the Lord's song in this land of ours. And then God had promised and prophesied through Jeremiah that 70 years later he would bring them out of captivity. And so sure in 536, the mighty Medes and the Persians took over Babylon and Cyrus of Persia sent Zerubbabel back and he rebuilt the temple from 536 to 516. 20 years it took and the temple was rebuilt. After that, we have Esther slotted in, if you remember, 486, and how that wicked Haman tried to destroy the Jews. Then after that, 458 BC, we've got Ezra and he led another wave of the Jews back out of captivity, the second wave, and he was seeking to bring the Jews back to their covenant obligations under God. And then we arrive at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about 445 BC, the third wave. And this time, Nehemiah was concerned with the walls of Jerusalem. So as we come to Nehemiah 1 and chapter 1, we are introduced to a man called Nehemiah, whose name means an encourager. In the palace of Shushan, which is modern-day Iran, at the end of verse 11 in chapter 1, it tells us he was the king's cupbearer. But we shouldn't misrepresent them or underrepresent them because when he was the king's cupbearer, he effectively was the first minister of the land. Remember when Daniel was taken captive, he was the cream out of Judah. And so this man, probably born in captivity, but he had worked his way up, so beside the king, he was first minister of the land. And then we come to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1 again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalan, it came to pass in the month Cheslu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, and he certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity, there in the province are in great affliction and approach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And we read in that verse that the people were under great affliction and reproach. We read the crushing effect in verse 4, what this had in Nehemiah, because it says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down 
and the gates thereof were burned with fire. You see, Jerusalem was the place where the Lord had chosen to put his name. It was God's earthly center. When Solomon had built the temple, God had declared in 2 Chronicles 7 and 16 that his eyes and his heart would dwell there perpetually. The state of things in the holy city therefore was a reproach upon the very name Jehovah. That this moved Josiah to tears. In a similar fashion, I wonder, are we moved in our day? We see ungodly men making ungodly laws in an ungodly way, as Jude 15 tells us. And this is an Ulster, a place where God has blessed. The Christian Institute bulletin highlights how men are now striving and maneuvering to create laws to prevent perhaps the preaching of God's word, the good news to man. And what are they saying? It's a hate crime. Day by day, week by week, year by year, the powers of darkness are encroaching all around like the mighty armies of Sennacherib. Are we like Hananiah and his friends? Yes, we feel the soreness within. We may tut and shake our heads, talk about the good old days, but ultimately a cloud of inevitability engulfs us as the walls which were once strongly fortified and the gates which kept us secure are smoldering with fire. However, after a while, we accept the state of play, just like those that lived within the decimated city of Jerusalem. The surrounding inhabitants of the land then looked on with pride and contempt at the plight of the once mighty Jerusalem and their invincible God. In our day, as Peter prophesied, would come scoffers mockly cry out, where is the promise of his coming? And today there is a blatant fearlessness of the Lord God Almighty. But as we come to Nehemiah, who on hearing the plight of Jerusalem, sat down and wept and mourned certain days, fasted and prayed before God. So let us, for our own instruction, see what Nehemiah did in the situation so that weighed so heavily upon his heart. So the first thing we read and we see in Nehemiah is the upward look. Nehemiah's grief manifested itself in the intensity of his praying. With great purpose of heart and truly a humble mind, he came before the mercy seat. Prayer in the Bible is primarily viewed as an attitude of heart towards God. And it is in this sense Paul exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 to pray without ceasing. It is our duty to strive to maintain a moment-by-moment attitude of dependence upon God. We see this if you turn over to chapter four, or verse 4 of chapter 2. Because when the king asked Nehemiah, then the king said, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. We read here an emergency prayer to God before answering the king's question. And whilst emergency prayers are needful, Nehemiah's first prayer in chapter 1 was a, spe- a specific and definite act. Other great prayers of the Bible also recorded for our learning can be looked up upon as models or patterns of prayer. But when we come to verse 4 of chapter 1 again, we see, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Here Nehemiah introduces his prayer with the importance of taking time to wait upon God. Such language as this forbids us as a matter of habit just to rush into the presence of God. There's an intensity about prayer that demands time 
and patient waiting upon him in the secret place. If we accept that Nehemiah's prayer is given in such detail because it is needed as a model for us to follow, since it clearly is one of the mighty acts of prayer in the Bible, we're going to take that word acts so each one of us can remember A-C-T-S as an acrostic and apply it to this prayer. A of the word acts is for adoration. Read verse 5. And said I, beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him, and observe his commandments. Nehemiah begins his prayer objectively by focusing on who God is and his faithfulness. He addresses the Lord. This is in capitals in our Bible. Tells us that God is given here his highest name, maximum respect and reverence, the great I am. Some translations put the word Jehovah in here. Nehemiah takes time and with utmost respect, he draws into God's presence and gives God all the reverence. He doesn't rush into prayer with so much familiarity we seem to see nowadays. Hebrews 12 and 28 tells us, let us have grace whereby we serve God, maybe we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 50 and 21, tremendous verse for these days. Thou thoughtest altogether that I was such a one as thyself. And my goodness, as we look about in this nation, do we not see men and women thinking God is such a one as thyself? No, this is the great I am where we will come to worship. We must focus our mind on God's attributes. Remember, he's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He's self-existent, the self-sufficient one, the great I am who sent Moses back to Egypt. He's holy. The angels in heaven cry constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's immutable. Hard to believe and fathom this one. You and I have emotions which will waver with the wind, but God is immutable, unchangeable. The love he has for each one of us from eternity past when the plan of salvation was devised in eternity to that love right now, to love for all eternity, it stays the same. It cannot change. We will let him down, but that love will not let us go. And God also is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Isaiah tells us, it is he that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are grasshoppers. He goes on to say, Behold, the nations of the earth are a drop in the bucket and the small dust in the balance. So when we take the balance and it's blown and cleaned, there's still a tiny bit of dust on. That's what God says the nations of the earth are. And Daniel 4 tells us, He doeth according to his will, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's our God. So when we come into prayer, adore him. That's what God wants. That's what this passage is telling us. A is for adoration. C is for confession. Verse 6. Let thine ear be and now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. The true intercessor always identifies himself with those for whom he makes intercession. 
He makes their failures and sins his own. Although no floor feeling is reported against Nehemiah himself, the first principle in forgiveness is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must first see and then confess the unfaithfulness of our own hearts before God, as Nehemiah did. Nehemiah did not seek to make excuses. Verse 7, he says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He openly acknowledged the sins of his people and humbly identified himself with them and their feelings. Adoration, confession, tea is for thanksgiving. Even though the distress Nehemiah was in, he had a purpose to come to prayer. The dark clouds were encircling him. He simply thanked and pleaded the promises of God, and the promises of God are sure. On the one hand, verse 8, he says, loss always resulted from disobedience. And then verse 9, he says, while on the other hand, blessings always followed upon obedience. Peter tells us, whereby are given unto us great and precious promises, that by these, each one of us, may be partakers of the divine nature. How can we partake of that divine nature? By the promises of God. If we don't stand upon those promises, we can't claim that. But that's why Peter exhorts us that we may be partakers of the divine nature. Paul tells us, for all the promises of God are in him, or yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God. We can thank God for sending his only begotten son to die in Calvary, for saving us, keeping us, guiding us through the choppy waters of life, and for all his bountiful promises he's bestowed upon us. If we know if we fail to thank God, we're just like the nine lepers that we heard about last week. When the one leper came back to the Lord, what was the only thing the Lord said? Where are the nine? Paul in 2 Timothy tells us a characteristic of those in the last days that men will be unthankful. Therefore, Paul urges us in 1 Thessalonians, in everything, give thanks. Though this undoubtedly at times is challenging and difficult, but when we come to prayer, our hearts should be full of thanksgiving before the God of all grace. S is for supplication. Verse 10 and 11, we'll read those. Now these are thy servants, thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let not thine ear be attent- let now thine ear be an attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper I pray thee thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer only now at the end of his prayer at the very end of this chapter does he come to the reason why he wants to petition the throne These are your people, he says, Lord, whom you have redeemed. Redemption ground is the place to stand when we come to God in prayer. This is our standing before God. Our Lord himself, when he entered into the heavenly sanctuary, stood upon this ground. Hebrews 9 tells us that was by his own blood that he entered in. And as the high priest in the Old Testament entered in, to the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement, wearing the prescribed breastplate with the twelve jewels, and those jewels representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Christ is our high priest. 
and he brings his people into the presence of God the Father. And because his present ministry of intercession is based upon the blood of redemption, we are able to identify ourselves with him by faith within the veil and by virtue of that same blood to make our prayer known unto Almighty God. But then, secondly, Nehemiah also establishes prayer in the desires that fill the hearts of his people. Thy servants who desire to fear thy name, verse 11. This speaks about our state before God. That is what our spiritual desires are within. Jesus said, Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. True prayer calls for an examination of ourselves on the one hand. Psalm 66 and verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God won't hear me. On the other hand, 1 John 3 and 21 tells us, If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. The Lord looks upon the heart. He proves the springs that motivate us. He hears and answers the prayer that springs from hearts that are truly seeking God. Finally, Nehemiah, Nehemiah asked that his own way might be prepared before, before the king at the end of 11, chapter, verse 11. The chapters that follow reveal to us how amazingly God heard the prayer of Nehemiah. So the first look we've talked about is the upward look. The next look is the outward look. He faced the opposition. Whenever the Lord calls a person to serve him or begins a work or up, opposition will always follow. It usually starts in a very subtle manner, increases and intensifies to out and out opposition. Unbelievers and believers alike can be the source of such problems, and people never know in advance how or when or from what direction the opposition to the Lord's work will come, but it will come. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 and 11 tells us, For we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. Satan's methods do not change. From generation to generation, therefore, Nehemiah faced the same examples of opposition we will encounter. But we will see over and over again that Nehemiah prayed, committed his problems to the Lord. He faced the issues by dependence upon God's word. And he emerged victorious, giving God the glory. Opposition from without. Verse 10 of chapter 2, if you turn over. When Sinbalad the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. You see, these people were the regional governors serving under the king of Persia. They were Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? After the destruction by the Assyrians in 721 BC, the Assyrians took, as I said, all the cream away. They left the poor, and then they repopulated that land with other conquered nations. So what happened? The Jews intermarried with them. So this half-Jewish, half-Gentile people became known as the Samaritans. The people within Jerusalem, they were impoverished. The Jews did not believe anything could happen to change their situation. Perhaps time had convinced them that God had deserted them. And so, Sinbalad and his fellow influential governors had brought the people low into servitude and wanted that to remain the case. Hosea 4 and 6, tremendous verse in Hosea 4 and 6, says, My people 
are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What a verse. Just before Christmas, I was in Edinburgh. We went into the Bible bookshop, and as the conversation developed with the chap behind the bookshop, who'd taken it over to try and keep it going, he was struggling to find a place to attend where God's word is preached, and he had come to the accepting the fact that there is no church out there, so he was just going somewhere because he was going to church. How sad this was, I thought. The city of Edinburgh, just round the corner from the Greyfriars churchyard where the Covenanters signed the Scottish National Covenant in 1638, stating that Jesus Christ was the head of the church and not King Charles I. The Scottish Covenanters not only dreaded the monarchy's control of religion, but were worried that the church would eventually be brought back under papal authority and reverse the advances of the Reformation. After this persecution broke out and 18,000 Covenanters were hunted, captured, tortured, and executed, and this time became known as the Killing Times. Also only a few minutes away is St. Giles Cathedral, where John Knox, the face of the Scottish Reformation, lived, preached, and where his remains are buried. The man about whom Mary, Queen of Scots, is reported to have said, I fear Joel Knox's prayers more than all the ensembled armies of Europe. The man who cried to God, Give me Scotland, Lord, or I die. There are church buildings in every corner, but now sadly in many cases have been put to other uses, a bit like Ulster. And even the little bookshop is under pressure. Why? Because few are interested in such matters now. So we can well understand what Nehemiah's enemies meant when they said, there has come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Surely it is our duty to seek the welfare of the children of God. It is the Lord's work. So first of all, he faced anger. Verse 10 tells us they were extremely grieved that someone was coming to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. That would be the same today in this world. If God began to work, my goodness, can you imagine what it would be like? Then there was ridicule, verse 19 of chapter 2. They ridicule Nehemiah. And perhaps we were ridiculed once. Perhaps they said when we got saved, it would never last. In my case, at 14, standing in the school quad, one chap who's now a professor said, Oh, you Carl, you'll mellow. I always remember this as a, a lighthouse point as such. I don't believe I've mellowed. Yes, grown a bit wiser, but not mellowed. Mockery then in chapter 4, the walls are well underway. When the enemies hear and see this, they are angry. This building had to stop. They called the Jews feeble. If we read 4 verse 2, if you turn over 4, it says, And he spake before his brethren, and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves with their, when they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burnt? Is that not many ways like us today? The world sees us as ineffective. From a bygone age of such believing a book that any person with any sense wouldn't believe. They are in the majority, the ascendancy. They hold the levers of government, power, commerce. They are the shakers and movers in this world. Hence, we are viewed as feeble. But I want to note, tremendous if you note in verse 3, Tobiah then speaks up. 
Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. And you know, he made a monumental mistake because he called it their stone wall. It wasn't their wall. It was God's wall. And that gives us encouragement. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and 16 said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's God's wall. Then we had opposition without. Opposition within then began to happen. It was much easier to identify the without attacks than the within attacks. Tiredness, if we read verse 10. And Judah said, this is Judah speaking now. Remember, the land of the tribe of Judah. The strength of the burrs and the burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build this wall. Is that not many ways? Um, sorry, uh, it appears that they didn't really want to accomplish the task that the Lord had given them to do. In essence, they had taken their eyes off the Lord. Yes, the circumstances were dire around them, but yet they had taken their eyes off the Lord. And if we read Habakkuk, as he sees what God is going to do when he raises up the Chaldeans that, we've just, that we're reading about, Habakkuk can't understand it. So it's the same thing. So these people, they couldn't understand it. In essence, they had taken their eyes off the Lord and were thinking of themselves. God wanted the walls built, but they thought they were looked down, though they were looked down upon by the surrounding nations, they were quite happy for it all to stay as it was. And after all, the walls were decayed. And sure, look at the rubbish. They just couldn't be bothered. Perhaps we are the same. Perhaps we have much rubbish in our lives. Clearing away the rubbish had to be done. It, does, it wasn't an option. When we look around, we see much to cause concern. We talk about it, may even pray about deliverance in our day. Perhaps if deliverance came with the great upheavals that it would entail, we would rather things just stay as they are. But this is just like the Lord has told us to lay the same church in Revelation. They were neither hot neither cold. And what did God say? I'll spew you out. And that's what happened. Fear then came. Nehemiah 4 and 8. Nehemiah's exhortation, when the fear came into the midst, they were afraid, the children, because they were building this wall and they were afraid of attack. Be not afraid of them. You see, the fear of the amassing enemy of verse 8 had permeated the minds their minds, and it was only a matter of time, they said, before we're going to be slain. The Jews living outside the walls, but sympathetic to the build to Nehemiah, came to Nehemiah 10 times and told them, they're going to attack you. They're going to attack you. 10 times, it says in verse 12. Verse 11 tells us it was going to be a surprise attack as well. So Nehemiah, what does he do? He sets up watches and reminds the people that the Lord was with them. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, for your sons, for your daughters, and for your wives. The church likewise must be watchful. 
as when the church is on guard, guard, the enemy sees little victory. But when it is not watchful and slack regarding the teachings in the Word, the enemy will make massive inroads into the Christian church. We see this in the historic decline of the once great evangelical denominations. C.H. Spurgeon said, If the church is the ship and the sea is the world, it's fine. The ship will float upon the sea. But once the sea gets into the ship, the ship begins to sink. Within the church today, young people have no idea how much how church culture has become conformed to that of the carnal world. Contemporary worship and praise has certainly accelerated this within the churches. Worldly lifestyles seem to be acceptable. The Lord's Day is no longer a holy day, but a day of recreation. Laxity seems to be the order of the day. And if we are to pass comment on such matters, we are quickly labeled extreme. So what are we to do when faced with this onslaught? The great teacher, the Apostle Paul, in his final words to young Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 2 and 13, Hold fast to the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The rebuilding of the walls speaks to us on the principle of separation. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, Hebrews 13 tells us. And in his light we shall see light. Chapter 5 contains three more oppositions from the Jews internally. Assassination five times. They tried to trick Nehemiah to get him out, away from building the walls in order to assassinate him. Then he was slandered and they said he only wants to make himself a new kingdom and make himself the king. So we can see our enemy will be relentless and he'll be resourceful to stop the work of the Lord. And be not mistaken, this will cause fear. Nehemiah experienced this fear. If we read chapter 6 and verse, first part of verse 9, it says, For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work. Yes, it's intense. What a warning this is for each one of us. But then we read what Nehemiah did. What did he do again? The second half of that verse tells us, He cries, O God, strengthen my hands. He prays again unto the Lord. You know, this reminded me of Martin Luther. At the Diet of Worms in 1521, of the assembly held at the city of Worms, called on behalf of the Holy Roman Empire and presided over by Emperor Charles V. Martin Luther was summoned to the Diet in order to renounce or to reaffirm his views in the response to a papal bull by Leo X. Luther describes himself, these are his words, as physically fearful and trembling as he and the small band of supporters entered Worms. On the 17th of April, being cross-examined by the great debater of Rome, Johann von der Ecken, Luther admitted that the books on display before the court were his, but when asked to repudiate them and recant, he requested time to consider the question. Remember, he was standing before the most powerful man in the world, surrounded by powerful people from both church and empire. The council agrees to his request, and Luther retreats and goes into seclusion. He also hears from his supporters that his performance that day had not been impressive. They could not hear him, and he had not shown a strong defense. That night, in fear and trembling, 
Luther pours out his heart before God. Part of that prayer says, Forsake me not, for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. The next day, Luther, being cross-examined again, this time he defends his books, his views, and refuses to recant or repudiate his works unless convinced by Scripture. It is here that Martin Luther delivered one of the most important speeches in the history of the church. Summarized in that immortal statement, Here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. God, help me. Amen. And the penniless monk from East Lieben, East Germany, smashed the iron-like grip of Rome throughout Europe. So we have talked about the upward look, prayer. The outward look, our enemies. And the final look is the downward look, the work. So I've been reading, as we've been reading in Nehemiah, from when the work first was put into Nehemiah's heart by God in chapter 1, through to making the 900-mile trip from Shushan in the, uh, to, to Jerusalem, through to surveying the condition of the walls by night, to commencing the works, through the various strands of opposition, the work that God had placed within his heart moved forward. The walls throughout all that came his way were being rebuilt. The works didn't stop. Nehemiah's constant theme was, remember the Lord. Verse 14 tells us, chapter 4, verse 14, it says, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Simple, isn't it? But why do we find it so hard? Even after all Nehemiah's godly endeavors, this is the one thing needful. We must remember the Lord. Leave the Lord out and defeat is certain, but bring the Lord in and victory is secure. This is what Moses meant when he charged Israel, saying, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 8 and 11. James 4 and 6 tells us, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So though there was much to hinder the workers, they redoubled their efforts. Not only did they pray, but after they had prayed, what did they do? They stepped out in faith and kept working. Apart from washing, they didn't put their clothes off. Half the people worked while the other half kept guard. Special arrangements were made to cover the hours of darkness. And the people labored together. The sword in one hand and the trial in the other. The kingdom of God is built with both sword and trial. We wield the sword against the enemies of the truth and ply the trial for the building up of God's work. The application is, God didn't remove the attacks or the attackers, but yet the walls were built. Special mention is made in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. It says, And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place therefore ye hear the sound of the trumpet? Resort thither unto us, for our God shall fight for us. All the people were exhorted to keep their ears tuned for the sound of the trumpet. This suggests the corporate subject, subjection of the people to the word of God. The ultimate test for our, for our, of our profession 
and of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is our attitude to his word. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The walls were finished. We read in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month of Elu in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass when her enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was the work of, the God, was the work of God. The walls were amazingly finished in 52 days. And when it had sunk into the enemies of the Lord as to what they had just witnessed, their countenance was fallen because they had to admit it was of the Lord. And so the wrath of man was made to praise the Lord. What a thrill this would be in our day if salvation came back to the streets of Ulster. Those whose society had given up on getting gloriously saved, homes being rebuilt, families being brought together again, a God-fearing and honoring Jew settling again on the land with a people seeking to obey God's voice. The world of secularism, atheism, liberalism and unbelief are increasingly and arrogantly believing the walls cannot be rebuilt. But if we are moved like Nehemiah and God hears our cry and he sees our plight and we arise to build, the world would be forced to admit, as they did in Nehemiah's day, that this work was wrought of God. So as we conclude, the challenge is great. But what an opportunity is presented unto each one of us God grant us the faith to take God at his word. The Apostle John assures us in 1 John 1 and 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Luke 1 and 37, the angel declares, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And God himself, in Jeremiah 32 and 27, announces, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me. We must therefore look up in prayer. Remember, ACTS, come into God's presence and adore Him, see Him for who He is. Look outward, beware of the enemies off the cross, and keep close to the Word, and look downward at the work that God has sovereignly given us to do in 2024. You know, neither of us are here by chance. We're not born in Reformation times. We're not born in times of great awakening. We're born here for a purpose. It's God's sovereign choice. The message throughout Nehemiah is simple. Pray, depend upon God. Give God the glory. Amen.